sermon title this morning is Jesus Killed Death. The famous book by John Owen is titled The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Jesus Killed Death. John 19, verse 16 to 42. We're going to look at Jesus' death and burial. The crucifixion, death, and burial this morning. We do need some backstory. And when I say backstory, I mean backstory this morning. This morning, before we get to John 19, we start our introduction with Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. And I want to call our attention to the covenant of works that happened between God and Adam. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day of day that you eat, you shall surely die. The day you eat, you shall surely die. Let me ask you a question. Did Adam and Eve die that day? Did they physically die? Did they what? Spiritually die? They spiritually died that day. There is a two-fold judgment that came down upon Adam and Eve. A spiritual death and a physical death. Physical death happened after, after the fall. It was a result of our rebellion against God. It wasn't just Adam that day, it was you. And it was me. It was all of humanity. Every person that's ever been born is in their representative, their federal head, Adam. Adam chose sin, therefore we with him chose sin. We chose death. We ate with him that day. Spiritual death that day, physical death later, twofold death because of sin. When we consider this earth and everything that happened after the fall to the human being and then to the cosmos, we consider things like sickness of every kind, knee pain, joint pain, back pain that happens every morning for some of you, mental illness, heart disease, headaches, depression, anxieties of all sort, cancer, they all find their origin, origins in the judgment of God upon humanity because of that day. I got a call from Mason Scroggins, text from him yesterday, many of you know Mason and Bree, and Mason said I could share this, but last Sunday Mason's father complained of abdominal pain. His father's name is Brian. He had abdominal pain, was holding their little new baby. And he went and got it checked out and come to find out he has acute melanoid leukemia. He's had two surgeries this week and he's having a third today. And he started chemo yesterday. Brian is a strong man the physical body experiences those sorts of things because of our sin in the garden that day. The consequences of the fall are still seen everywhere, even in the lives of believers. We will certainly talk about that. But I want to pause and pray for Brian right now and for Mason and Bree. Because what we're talking about today has implications for them. And what we see in Genesis 2 resulted in all the things that we see in this world today, 
even into the Scroggins family right now. Let's, let's just go ahead and lift, lift Brian up. Father, I thank you for my friends Mason and Bree. Uh, many of us know them. They were with us and served so, so willingly and diligently. We just love them so much. And uh, when I see a father and a son have a good relationship, there's something endearing about that. And I thank you for Mason's father. A strong man. He's not even scared to go, whatever that is, when you go fishing in a creek with your hand and you get a big massive, you know, person-sized catfish on your arm. That's a man's man who can do that, and that's Brian. And he also knows how to weep, and he knows how to love. He is a man that loves you, Jesus, and I just thank you for that. And I ask right now that you would bring healing over Mason, or over Brian's body. I just ask for healing. God, as, as easy as you can take care of uh, taxes as easy as you wake us up in the morning, as easy as you give us breath to breathe right now, this very moment, you can bring healing to that man's body, and I ask that you would do it. You can do anything that you want to do. You're not powerless. You are in the heavens, and you do all that pleases you. So we ask that it would please you to do that. And we trust you no matter what. And I uh, thank you for Mason and Bree. Give him direction, specifically, he's making decisions for his family. Give him wisdom and grace, and uh, I just ask you to give him all the wisdom that he needs. Uh, I trust, God, that you're going to help and bring comfort. We know that because of the cross, we don't face these situations the same way the world does. And so we just trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So not only did this happen in Genesis 2, but in Genesis 3, we see that the ground was cursed because of sin, and I missed something in the sermon last week, and Dan came up and told it to me. I'm, I'm so, so thankful that we are part of a church body where there's people in the congregation that come up and they say, you missed some aspect of the gospel in the text. I love that, that you guys have looking eyes to see things that I don't see. That priesthood of the, all the believers is a true thing because you guys are seeing the good news of Jesus Christ in every passage every week, and I'm thankful for that. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 says this. God said to Adam, and, he, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for, for you, and you shall eat the plant of the fields. Now, what I missed last week, I will get to here in a second, but for a moment, I want to talk about the earth and the curse that's upon it, the ground that contains a curse. Cursed is the ground because of Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you and I. Cursed. Cursed. Hurricanes, earthquakes, mass graves that I have personally seen in Haiti of 50,000 People, dump trucks carrying bodies to mass unmarked graves. 50,000 plus people, massive. I've seen them with my own eyes. Tornadoes, tsunamis, wildfires. Each year over 100,000 people on this earth die from natural disasters. Because of technology and modern buildings, those numbers keep going down and down and down every single year. But hundreds of thousands of people die each year because of the cursed ground. Human beings born into spiritual death are subject and rebellion are subject to physical illness, disease, death, pain, starvation, war, 
sex trafficking. The earth is cursed, dysfunctional, evil. God's judgment is upon the earth because of human sin. And here's what I want to tell you. The death of Jesus has something to say about it. The death of Jesus, there are infinite implications of it for the human life and this cursed earth. For your physical bodies, for your eternity, and for the sunset that we see each evening. What in the world does Christ's death have to say to all of that? Chapter 19, starting in verse 16 of John. We're going to read from verse 16 down through 22. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two, bro- with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Many skeptics, atheists, agnostics, people who deal with what they call contradictions in the biblical story, look to what was written above Jesus' cross as one apparent contradiction, and they say, look, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, there are contradictory words above the head of Jesus. Uh, is, you can go and read that, and there's slight variations of what actually was said above Jesus' head. But it's interesting, this passage explains it very, very clearly. The Pilate wrote in three languages... Jesus, the King of the Jews, above his head on the cross in three languages. Now, when Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when you look at these three languages, they're translating this. Translations have, for the same meaning, could have different word variants. Same meaning there. And so it's really easy to untie that knot by that one simple thing. And I just say that for you to press into the biblical text when you're studying your Bible and there's something that seems to be a contradiction. The Bible really does interpret the Bible. And when you see, okay, it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Okay, wait a minute. Three ways it was written. There are answers to questions about the validity of the Bible. And so press in, study, pray, wrestle, read commentaries, get them out, ask questions, and you'll see the Bible isn't against itself. It complements itself. It interprets itself. God's Word is not against God's Word. We look at Christ crucified, and I want to ask the question... What is different about Christ's crucifixion than anybody else's crucifixion? There were two others crucified that day. In Rome, the city streets would be lined near A.D. 70 with people, Christians, being crucified and lit on fire to be human torches. What's the difference between the two thieves being crucified that day and Christ being crucified that day? Crucifixion, many of you know... Uh, was a horrific way to die. It was a public spectacle. It was meant to be. It was a warning for other 
men or women who would commit similar crimes, that if you do this crime, you will also be punished publicly. You will be exposed and humiliated. You will be publicly shamed, and you will have excruciating pain. Jesus had his very beard ripped out from his face. You mamas know what it feels like to get your hair pulled out of your head if you have children, and that doesn't feel very good. Uh, You husbands, if you allow this horrific thing to happen to you, you know what it feels like for your eyebrows to be plucked, you unibrow guys. Jordan one time put that hot wax stuff on my, a couple times right here. The world has experienced no pain like hot wax. Terrible. What ladies have to go through. Um, You know what it feels like to get just hair or eyebrows pulled out? Jesus had his very beard pulled out. Men, let me just ask you, and we got beards are plentiful around here. What would that feel like to get your beard pulled out? Hurts. Doesn't feel very good. You're not volunteering for that. Jesus had his beard ripped from his face. He had skin from his body, muscles from his back, beaten and ripped away. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you can see the horror of crucifixion. After the beatings that he took, a cross would be laid upon his open and exposed back, and he was expected and demanded of him to carry his own cross beam, own cross. The word excruciating, I'm sure you again have probably heard this, comes from the Latin word, Andy would know how to pronounce it, the Latin word that I don't know how to pronounce. To crucify, it means unbearable pain, extreme agony. The word excruciating comes from this invented form of pain, the crucifixion. Crucifixion is thought to be the most painful torture ever invented. It was invented by the Prussians and then perfected by the Romans. They knew what they were doing to inflict pain. And Jesus was not the only one who was crucified in this way. Others experienced the same sort of beatings, the same sort of pain. So it is, I think, a reasonable question to ask, why was Jesus' crucifixion any different than any other crucifixion? What made it effective? What makes Christ on the cross speak to a broken and fallen world when other people dying on the cross just speaks of a broken and fallen world? Jesus' death on the cross speaks to a fallen and sinful world. Other people's death on the cross just reveals a broken and sinful world. What's the difference? Why? Well, Pilate didn't know, but he was speaking truth. The man who didn't recognize truth sure knew how to speak it. The king of the Jews, it hung over his head, the words over his head. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews... That's why Jesus' death meant something different than the death of those two thieves that day. He was the king of the Jews, the promised Messiah. He was the one they long expected and longed wanted to come. And they put him on a cross. Now, Genesis 3.18, we've already read it. Thorns and thistles are a result of the fall. And this is fascinating, the way the scriptures are written, Jesus wore a crown of thorns. He was the king of the Jews, but the crown he wore did not have emeralds in it. 
It had thorns woven in it and pressed upon his skull. In that day it was not sign of honor, but of dishonor to be put an unholy crown of thorns upon you was a sign of shame. And yet Jesus was doing something. The long promised one they put on the cross. This is what Dan pointed out. This was not no ordinary crucifixion. All the consequences of the fall find their death or their promised death. The great reversal in Christ himself. Jesus bore the curse that we earned. Thorns and thistles, the ground cursed, put upon the very son's head. And the continuity of the Testaments is remarkable. We even see this in Genesis chapter 23 with this great imagery of Isaac and his son Jacob, or Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac being offered up and him not struggling to the altar but walking willingly. And then all of a sudden in the corner you have a ram who is caught in a thorny thicket in his very head with his horns caught in the thicket. The continuity of the Testament's declaration of the cross of Christ is remarkable. And here is Jesus coming to take the very curse that was laid upon Adam and this earth and he did it again. As we said last week three or four times, he did this for you. For me. Something is happening. The curse, the consequences of the fall, leading up to the cross, and then Jesus taking those consequences upon his very head, upon his very body, for you and this cursed earth. It was no ordinary crucifixion. All of human history and all of future history finds itself in John 19. History past, history future, <laughs> history future, all the future, right now this present moment, you can find it all in this chapter, right here. All of human history. In John chapter 19, as we turn our eyes to Calvary, the very center, the epicenter of all in every story, right here. The Jews could not tolerate the truth we see in verse 21. Do not say that he is the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. They couldn't handle it. And I think, this is not in the text. This is just an opinion of mine. You can have your own opinions. We don't have our opinions on the word. Okay, The word speaks. Okay, But I think Pilate just may have wanted after he declared Jesus innocent over and over again, he just may have wanted them to feel the weight of crucifying an innocent man. I'm not changing it. I don't find guilt in him. His blood be on your hands. We think about human history... And we see it in John 19, past, present, future. And we read in verse 24 that these things were written that were going to happen to Jesus. Look at verse 20. Actually, just start in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus. Now, Jesus had been crucified. Jesus took his guard. They took his garments and they divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, 
but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This was to fulfill the scripture. The role of the die. His garments are mine. No, I want his garments. Let's settle it with the roll of the dice. Even that action that feels so trivial is included in what is written. It as goes with what is written. Human history, I want you to hear this, is written by God. Not discovered by God. When I was in college... I had a leader who asked me a question. Can God learn? Can God learn? And it was an intentional question. And I even bought into a system of theology for a season called open theism, which says that God knows some of the future. He doesn't know all the future. That's up to you. And with whatever what we do, God discovers and learns what the future holds based on what decisions we make. Essentially, what ends up happening is you become God's teacher, teaching what tomorrow holds to the very God of the universe. But we see in this passage, down to the very roll of the dice and dividing of the garments, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that the scriptures are written. God does not learn. He declares, according to Isaiah, the end from the beginning. We live out the very decree of God by willing and with consequential choices. But make no mistake, make no mistake, do not make this mistake of believing that we teach God the future or that God lacks knowledge about anything that would be tomorrow. The future for God is not something he simply knows. I want you to hear this. The future is somewhere God is. We are now. God is yesterday, today, and forever. He is in the future now, presently reigning and ruling. He doesn't discover tomorrow. He is in tomorrow. Psalm 139, 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is true of Jesus as well. He was walking out what God had formed for him. And here's what's good news for me. I I can't control today. I make the best choices, real choices today. But you know what? What day of your life goes the way you think it's going to go? I can't plan out tomorrow. I'm thankful God is already in tomorrow. I'm thankful that I don't teach him anything. I'm glad that I learned from him. And he's reigning in tomorrow. Jesus' days were written out of him, and Jesus was willingly walking out what God had formed for him. 
and part we see of what God had for His Son to do, God the Father had for God the Son to do, was to take care of His earthly mother. Let me just say this to you guys, just as an encouragement. Side note, small implication from the passage, and I need to hear this. Call your mom. Care about your mom. Honor her. Love her. For some reason, with guys and moms, it's easy to, oh, it's been a month. I haven't talked to my mom. Call your mom. We see Jesus loved his earthly family. He loved his church, the bride, so to speak, more than even his earthly family. But he did have care and tenderness to his mother in this moment. He sees his mother hurting, and he wants her taken care of. Jesus lived out what God the Father had him to do, and Jesus, in fact, fulfilled the Ten Commandments here when he honored his mother. He looked upon the cross, from the cross, looked down at his mother, behold your son, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, the very author of this book, thereby Jesus' mama, and Jesus looks with love, and no doubt saw his mom weeping, and Mama, your son. John, take care of her. I love that woman. Jesus lived out even the Ten Commandments, the very law of God in our place. Joseph's gone, Jesus, or Mary's husband. Jesus is going to die. Certainly he will come back to life, but he will ascend to heaven shortly thereafter. And so he commissions John and John obeys. Another small implication. We see a clear and direct commissioning of John, the Apostle John here, take care of my mom. And John takes care of his mother. Now we know John would become exiled later, most likely after Jesus' mother was died. But for you and I, we have, although not been given specific commission to take care of Jesus' mother, Jesus has also commissioned us. He's told us what our lives are to be about. And we come back to the Great Commission over and over again because I want it beaten into our brains why we exist. Jesus commissioned John, but he's also commissioned you. George, Casey, here's what I want you to do. Go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And where that starts for them right now, and for all you parents, that starts at home. So the greatest place of evangelism for them is with Calvin. And then when Calvin becomes a Christian, the epicenter of discipleship for them becomes not all you guys, Calvin. And then discipleship happens and evangelism happens out from the people we love the most outward. We somehow get this reversed where we think, oh, discipleship and effective ministry happens with everybody except my family. And especially in pastoral ministry, for some reason, pastors think it's a greater work to go spend time with other people in the church than it is their own family. And I'll tell you this, I will never spend as much time with you as I do with them. And my evangelism will first go to my little boys, then to anybody else in this world. And I, and I talk to people, and again, I embarrass people all the time. But I'll be with people, and hey, are you a Christian? And I'm with Ryan, you know, we're talking to people about Jesus. And I'm, you know, I try, if you're around me long enough, I'll embarrass you with evangelism. But that's our mission, evangelism. But I will always give my best and try and fight to give my best to my family first. And that's for you as well. It doesn't matter how old your kids are or how young your kids are. Evangelism and discipleship starts from those who are closest with you 
outward. So in the same way that Jesus commissioned John, take care of my mama, he has commissioned you with the purpose of your life. Like, what if John looked at him and said, ah, that's going to be optional for me, Jesus. The Great Commission is not optional for us. He has commissioned us to do this. So that's why you have your jobs. That's why you stay at home. If you're a stay-at-home mom. That's why you go to work. That's why you go to school. Because he's commissioned you. And that's, that's where you live your commission out. Make sense? Again, another small but important implication from Jesus commissioning John. He's told us our life mission. Go, make disciples, evangelize. But Jesus wasn't simply crucified and tortured. He, in fact, did finally die on the cross. We see this, look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it up to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed and he gave up his spirit. What is finished? Just our sins being forgiven or is it something more than that? And I say just because many of us still don't know that. At least functionally in our lives, we really don't live as if our sins are forgiven. What is finished? Jesus did what he came to do. He obeyed his Father's will. Every T crossed. Every I dotted. He did it. He obeyed God's will, never doubted his Father's heart even marching up to the cross when he would experience his father's wrath. In the moment of feeling his father's wrath, he did not doubt his love. In the moment of experiencing the father's wrath, he did not doubt his father's love. He fulfilled the spirit and the letter of the law. Jesus faced the devil... And he did not flinch, he did not crumble under the pressure. The devil may have defeated Adam and Eve, but Jesus crushed and destroyed the unformidable foe. Adam blamed his wife, Jesus took the blame for his wife. All the consequences of the fall are representative of God's actual judgment. When we think about the ripple effect that happened from that that ugly day in the garden and all the things that happened, the ground being cursed. And when we consider in Colossians that Jesus reconciled all things to himself, whether in heaven or whether on earth, that Jesus is taking more, he's stepping into more than just our place as our substitute. All of the consequences of the fall are representative of God's actual judgment on Jesus. We know what it looks like for an F5 tornado to hit a home. It levels it. You see a foundation. We all know, or many of us know, the power of a hurricane. We go down and we see and we just stand and marvel at the power of a hurricane. Jesus took every F5 tornado and Category 5 hurricane that has ever been. The fury, 
The power of God on display. The judgment of God coming upon the Son, Jesus Christ. Any wind that has ever gone across your face and caused more than just a brisk amount of joy, but has caused any sort of discomfort and not delight. It came upon the Son, Jesus Christ. Lightning in Eden was only for beauty. But only after the fall has it ever killed anyone. Every bolt of lightning that has led to destruction or fire has come upon the Savior, Jesus Christ. Death and disease, not in the garden. Death and disease, after the garden. Death and disease came to the human body from Adam's effort and his sin, your sin and I. Jesus died with a real and actual body. A real body, flesh and bone. He was no ghost. Uh, Thomas could come up and press into his side. I don't want to tickle you there. <laughs> press into his side. Feel the holes in his body. The scars on his body. He died with a real body, taking all the effects of the fall in his very flesh. Sickness and death, consequences of the fall, will not have victory over Jesus. Your sins, your actual sins, not just some imaginary sins or some sins that Jesus thought you may commit one day, your actual sins this week that merited God's judgment. Jesus died for those sins, real sins, not just hypothetical sins, real people, not just hypothetical people. He died to purchase people for God, his bride. He died to procure certain salvation for his bride. Certain salvation for his bride. The bride in which he died for will be saved. Period. Not might be saved. Will be saved. He didn't try really hard. Only to fail every time people reject him. His death procured your salvation. His death procured your salvation. It is finished. Your salvation now and for eternity finished on the cross. It is finished. You are God's. The power of sin over your present life. Jesus broke it on the cross. Jesus did all his father sent him to do. For those of us who get bogged down and condemned by the law, the flesh, or the enemy, look to the cross and hear Jesus say, It is finished. Paid in full. Not partially, but in full. Therefore, therefore, because it is finished, all of those things are finished. Therefore, right now for you, Romans 8.1 is so true for you. For those who are in the agony of Romans chapter 7, wondering, why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? And why don't I do the very things I want to do? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Why am I still struggling? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. But I sinned yesterday and I forgot to ask forgiveness. There's no condemnation for me. Your sins, past, present, future, taken care of, it is finished. Therefore, in this life, right now, you have a promise that though the battle may be hard... That sin that so entangles you right now will not have dominion over you. 
The power of sin is broken. You are declared righteous and becoming, by God's grace, righteous. Right now you have a promise that everything that comes your way must work for your good and God's glory. Whatever comes your way, it's not coming to you because of God's wrath or His anger. It's coming to you for His goods, for your good somehow and His glory. Therefore, because it is finished, you have a certain hope and a promised future with an eternity, with a perfect, real body. Your body matters. Your body matters. How you treat your body and how I treat our, my body matters. Jesus came with a physical body and his death and resurrection shows us the significance not just of our soul but of our physical body. And we will have a real body with no pain or sickness for all eternity. Those back pain, the back pain you feel, the knee pain you feel, the headache I feel, the sinus, the, all this that's happening right now, I have a promise because it is finished that he will do away with all of it. That's good news. Because of Jesus... And because it's finished, and because he has defeated all the effects of the fall, I will step out of this body, body of clay, and I'll step into an eternal body, not subject to decay. And so will you, brother or sister in Christ. You say, I struggle with sin right now, even though I'm fully forgiven and counted in Christ, righteousness in, in Christ I still face daily warfare, but I have a promise right now that because of Jesus' death, one day not only will I be counted righteous, but I'll stand before a holy God. And Jesus will have beautified me, and he, the one who purchased me and bought me and died for me, will have been beautifying me. And one day he will complete his work, and he will present me to him. I won't present myself to Jesus. He will present me to himself. And I will not have any spot or any wrinkle or any blemish or any such thing. Sin eradicated. And I'll stand before my Jesus with no sin, with no amount of jealousy. I'll stand in front of him with no amount of pride, zero, with no arrogance that's, that I've held on to my whole life. Friends, I'm amazing at being arrogant because I'll convince you I'm humble. But one day I'll actually be humble. Therefore, we have a promise that in Jesus' death, he took care of every consequence of the fall. And everything that happened in the fall is in process of reversal for both now and forevermore. What is finished? It is finished. All of it. Eternity itself felt the ripple effects of those words. Your soul and body feel the ripple effects of those words. The sunsets and the sunrises that are broken right now feel the effects of those words. And one day those sunsets and sunrises will be restored and we'll actually see a real sunset and a real sunrise. Because of Jesus' declaration, it is finished. They wondered if he really died. In verse 31 and 37 we find that they... That Jesus really died. They didn't have to break his legs. They pierced his side. Blood and water flowed. 
Jesus' death in our place changes how we as Christians view death in this life. Let me say that again. Christ's death, he defeated death. He died in our place. Let me ask you this. Are you going to die one day? Well, we're going to die on this earth. We're going to age and get old. You, you may die today. Tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised next year. We, we might die today. You may die ripe old age. But here's the deal. We still die physically. What does Christ's death have to say about that? Death for us has to be, if we believe in Christ, has to be different. If he died to take the punishment of death and we still die, something had to happen. Why, why is there death there still for us? If he actually died, the consequences of sin, well, death must no longer be a consequence for us. Death is not something that's punishing for us. Death must be something like this. Gain. Not loss. For the world, death is loss. For people who don't know Jesus, this is the closest thing to heaven they'll ever get. Right here. The old preacher years ago, Mark Driscoll, said this years ago. It's helpful. But for you who are in Christ, the closest to hell we'll ever get is right now. You see, for us, death is an upgrade. It's not a loss. For the world, it's a loss. I wish somebody in the Bible would have said something about this. Oh, Paul. For me to live is, and death is loss. Die is gain. Death is gain. That's just not the Apostle Paul. That's for you. Look at me. Some of you have amazing lives. Some of you have really difficult lives. Let me just unpack for you my life right now. My life right now is really wonderful. I got two wonderful boys looking at me. I love those. My wife, she's amazing, and she's amazingly patient with me. I'm not as amazing as I seem. She's so patient with me. I love my sons. I have friends. Not many guys in their 30s can say they have friends. I don't get to hang out with them as much as I'd like. I have older men in my life that love me. Younger men in my life that I get to mentor. I get to do fun things. We went to Kansas City and had a blast this last week. We had a lot of things. My life, I, enjoy, I am a happy, happy man. Life is really good. But here's how the, what the Bible says about death. Death is gain. If life is that good, I can stare in the face of my son. And life is that amazing. Look at my wife. And if life is that amazing, look at the people you love. And death is gain. What must eternity be like? We will. Friends, for, for the world, death is loss. For those who are outside of Christ, it's still loss. It's still consequential. It's still judgment. But for those who are in Christ, it's gain. There is nobody in heaven. You may be sad at a lost loved one. You may have cried tears. You may have wondered why. But you know who's not wondering why? The person who died and experienced gain. There's nobody in heaven right now, no matter when they died, no matter what age they died, that's sad about it. Not one. You see, death for us is it's totally different. Death is gain. Now, we don't go looking for it. We don't go wanting for it. God, bring me home now. But we are not afraid of it. We are not afraid. 
Death is gain. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. And then we see a powerful testimony. In verse 35, actually, it says all of this is written that you also may believe. Remember, the whole point of the Gospel of John is that you may believe. As we talk about this stuff, believe in Jesus. If you don't know him, believe in him. Trust in him. That's our call. We plead with you. We implore with you, we beg you with the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. This is what all the scriptures are about. Verse 36, it's 36, 36, it says, For these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. All of this, all of the scriptures is about Jesus. Remember going through Genesis and light bulb after light bulb going off? Oh, it's not just really about, it's not just really vaguely about Jesus. Really, it's all about Jesus. It really is. It's all about Jesus. Even Genesis, it's like, my goodness, it's all about him. That's what the scriptures are about. And then we get amazing testimony of a religious man. Believe it or not, religious people can become Christians. This religious man, Nicodemus, verse 38 to 32, we see him early in John chapter 3, and Jesus confuses the heck out of him by saying, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what in the world? How can I do that? And Jesus, you can't do that. That's the point. You can't cause yourself to be physically born, and you can't cause yourself to be spiritually born. But thanks be to God, Jesus can do something about that. And Nicodemus is a man who's a testimony of somebody who can be saved, who's so caught up in religious busy work of doing things for God, and then all of a sudden he can be here, the one who comes to get Jesus and bring him to his very burial. This Nicodemus at some point from Genesis or John 3 forward experiences a tenderness or a love in Jesus, willing to lay his life on the line to come and say, give me that rebel. I'll take him. Nicodemus is a testimony to us all that nobody's too far. Because sometimes we forget that religious people are very far from God. And we know the rebellious son or daughter. We know the rebellious one that's in the gutter. We know the one who deals with addiction or you name it. They're far from God. But let me tell you this. If anybody is not in Christ, they're all equally far from God. And even religious people who don't know Jesus... They're caught thick in the mud and the mire, and they need Jesus to come to them to open their eyes and to call them home. And Nicodemus' testimony that nobody's too far. Nobody's too far. Let me ask you, are you praying for any Nicodemuses right now? Are you on mission with Jesus? Friends, it is finished. Changes Everything. Jesus really did die. And next week we get to look at the resurrection and we get to jump up and down and celebrate and we get to talk about things being restored and renewed and we get to talk about what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus will one day usher in because we get to experience so much of what Christ did on the cross right now. But one day, one day, Christ will return. It will actually happen. We will see him with our eyes. He will come through those clouds. We will meet him in the air. And we will be on a victorious ride across this world with him to see his glory spread throughout this whole earth and to see all his enemies destroyed. It is finished and it will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your presence and your power. We thank you and we think about death. That we think about Jesus' death and we don't go to despair because Jesus, you murdered death. You killed it. You changed death from something to be feared 
and judgment and you changed it into gain. And the very judgment that was passed upon humanity, Jesus stepped up, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it. Therefore, we anxiously await the day that we get to stand face to face with Jesus after he's done his beautifying work on us. And all that he accomplished for us, all he accomplished for the dirt that's sitting outside in that, in that playground and every blade of grass that's sitting out there in that yard for what Jesus did on the cross, declaring it is finished. We declare, as the book of Revelation, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Finally and fully reverse everything that you died to finish. We thank you for your grace. It's going to be our joy to sing to you. God, I thank you that we are a singing church. Help us to even be more of a singing church. Let's bust the windows out of this place. Let's sing from our heart to you. Jesus, I thank you for your words on the cross. It is finished. Let's sing. If you want to pray about anything, I'll be right up here. You can come and pray.